2 Corinthians chapter 4, if you want to follow along. We're going to spend a little time in Matthew and Luke today, too, as we kind of look back into how the gospel kind of explains some of the stuff that Paul is explaining here. He's uh, kind of going to go back and talk about how he came into Corinth and, and help them understand things. Uh, so this is the first six verses here to start off uh, in chapter 4. Therefore, having the ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. With ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You can kind of see how Paul is very poetic in his writings. He's pretty good at this, uh, very gifted in that way. But if you look at verses 1 through 2 and then down in 5 through 6, what's he saying? Don't change God's grace to try to make it more appealing. Uh, that's, that, it's always, we want to do that sometimes. Uh, churches do that sometimes. Uh, trying to improve on what God has revealed. Uh, you see way back in that we used the first part of the psalm for the children's sermon. But if you look at Psalm 19, it's, it's over and over the same thing. And this is a, a little bit of a flavor just in verses 7 and 8. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. It just goes on. It's just synonyms. It's poem. The idea that everything that God gives us is, is what we need. We don't need to improve on it. And I think the way he puts this, he says, we shouldn't resort to disgraceful and underhanded ways. Um, when present the gospel. Uh, if you present the gospel and somebody doesn't want to follow, that's really kind of up to them, right? Uh, you can't make somebody believe. So we shouldn't use bait and switch methods. You know, tell people, come to Grace Church and you'll get everything you ever wanted. We give you all a genie bottle and you rub it and then go home. And I mean, that's bait and switch, right? Uh, you're not going to get that. You know, I don't think so. If you do, let me know. Because I didn't know that's what you got. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we do that sometimes. Well, come to, you know, we just have fun here and all that. Well, we do have fun, but we also uh, get serious once in a while. And, and I think all those. So just, just present the truth. Uh, and we never want to emotionally manipulate people. Uh, I know that can happen very easily. And then that's not our goal. I mean, emotion is good. But we shouldn't want to try to lather people up into some emotion so they'll believe. Uh, what happens when the emotion goes away? Is the belief still there? Because you think about in your own life, when is it when your faith, if you're a believer, if you're, when your faith really is the most important to you and the most useful? When your emotions are down, when, you're going, when you have things that you have to, when the mountains are in your way. And if it's based on an emotion, when the emotion gets bad, then it goes away or it gets morphed. And so we have to be so careful here. It's not that we have to be boring with it either. Emotion is good. I, I remember when I came to the faith, I was kind of emotional. I was kind of cool in college. I'm not saying emotion is bad, but it's a response to the truth, not just an emotion. Uh, people can emotionally believe in lots of stuff, right? 
I mean, you see it on TV. You know, I saw an alien. And they're emotional about it. You know, whether it's true or not is another question, right? Uh, emotion can come in lots of ways. But is it from truth? The other thing, don't prey on people who are vulnerable. Uh, we always have to be careful of this when you do funerals, especially if I do a funeral for somebody I don't really know. Uh, what do you do with that? You know, I can't do a good eulogy because I don't know who they are. You try to do the best you can. But what do you do in a funeral? Well, you preach Christ's crucifixion and his resurrection. But you have to remember, you don't want to manipulate their grief. You want to show them the solution to all their problems eternally. And so sometimes you have to be, be careful with that. I've noticed when I do weddings, people just wait for you to shut up because there's usually, you know, good stuff to eat and the party and all that kind of stuff. So I always do really short wedding sermons. Um, but in the funeral, a lot of times people are literally looking for something. And so it's a, it's a good time to talk about it, but don't manipulate them or don't prey on their vulnerability. You prey on the fact that they're looking for something. Give them what they can find. And, you know, we've already talked about this, but never change the message. Um, Jesus is wonderful enough. You don't have to, you know... When you know him, it's like, oh, this is good. I don't need more than this. This is exactly what I need. Um, that's what the gospel is all about. So the message should be consistent. And if people want to reject that message, you know, you know sometimes I, I think it's funny, you know, like that tactics class that we're going to do. It helps us try to be able to share our faith. And, even, and, and it's not like you're getting everybody to the foot of the cross every time you talk to them. You know, I don't know, maybe that happens to you. That doesn't happen to me. One of the metaphors that uh, Greg Kokel always uses is to put a stone in their shoe. Sometimes just they may have a belief about God that's not real, or they may have a belief about something else that do they don't think doesn't line up with uh, the Christianity. Uh, I remember having a conversation with somebody on an airplane that said, you know, how, you know, found out I was a pastor and didn't go back to their magazine, actually wanted to talk. Um, they said, well, how could you believe in something so uns unscientific? And I said, well, I don't see those at odds with each other. And we talked about it, and he was just amazed that all this science I believed in, but I still believe I mean, I, I don't think the Bible is a scientific text, for one. But again, the message should be consistent. Sometimes you just put a stone in their shoe, and then maybe God will use somebody else later to help them down the road. Um, but what is the message? And we've hit this a lot. It's in 2 Corinthians a lot. He kind of talks about it uh, in, in summary here, too. The number one thing is you're guilty before a holy God. You've got to get people to repent. If they don't feel guilty, they're not going to repent. Why would you? You have to realize who you are before a holy God. And that you can get the facts, but eventually, hopefully, it hits your heart. And then true repentance will yield a true experience of God's grace. That's what you have. That's what saves you is the grace. Uh, we were singing about that, the Lamb of God, the perfect life. Marcus prayed about that. The idea of you get his righteousness, he takes our sin. So we get a soul and nature changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Our sins are washed away. We're seen blameless before a holy God. We're a new creation. We'll get that in a couple weeks. And now part of God's family. This is all pretty good. So why would we want to improve on this stuff? What, what are you going to improve there? There's nothing to improve. This is exactly what you were brought into the world for is to follow this and get in a connection with the holy God that created you. And those who would truly experience God's saving grace will strive to live a life of obedience. We see this in 1 John 3. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Now, that doesn't mean you don't mess up. It means this is not, you don't wake up that way, right? 
Hopefully you wake up and say, God, help me honor you in my day. And then if you mess up, we have. We can approach the throne of grace. But remember what the goal is. Is the goal to sin or not to sin? I've been reading this stuff for a long time. It seems like B to me. Uh, but this is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. There's ways to know this. doesn't mean we do it perfectly, but this should be our goal because the Spirit helps us do it. And then he uses that veil. We had that last week, you know, Moses comes down the, uh, the mountain and he's glowing. I saw a documentary that said he had been, he was radioactive. I don't know, maybe he was, but it uh, doesn't really matter, I guess. But uh, So we had that veil analogy that they couldn't see it and then the gospel's open to us and all that. But he's using this as more of a blind metaphor that Jesus used. They can't see. Those who don't see, they're going to perish because they're, they're not opening their hearts to the gospel. So Jesus said that, you know, let them alone, the blind, they're blind guides, and let the blind lead the blind, they both fall into a pit. But I want to go to Matthew, and you know this, uh, most of you, if you've read the Bible, you would know this parable. And uh, Matthew 13 has a lot of parables. Um, but this is, this is one where we get a parable, the disciples are kind of clueless on what it means, and then what I'm going to look at, what we're going to look at here is the explanation. Um, so it's the parable of the sower. You know, he goes out and throws the seed out and on path, on stony ground, on weedy ground, and then on good ground. And so now he is explaining this in verse 18. Here then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in the heart. This is what is sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself and endures for a while. Then tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word. Immediately he falls away. This is what we were talking about. If it's just an emotional response when something bad happens, we tend to fall away. This is kind of what he's talking, one of the things here. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word. And it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on, here's the word, as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, another sixty, and another thirty. So did you notice what the key was? Understanding the word of God. And sometimes we have to work at this. I thought I understood it most of my teenage life and then as I got into college I didn't understand it. I understood something it just wasn't the word of God <laughs> which is not good. Uh, what was your understanding? Because you think about it, the first one doesn't even understand it. They don't care. It sounds silly to us and if you don't have the spirit working on your heart, you're not going to feel guilty. What do we usually say? We usually, we usually people usually try to measure themselves by other people. Well I'm better than that guy. Yeah, maybe you are. Uh, uh, but that's not what the Word of God's talking about. But understanding is key. These other two, the thorns and the, and the rocks, they understand some of it, but they don't really get the depth. And so nothing grows. And then what happens? The one who hears the Word and understands it. What are you signing up for? This is back to what Paul's talking about. Are we bait and switching people? And what he goes on to is what I call, and this is a Bonhoeffer term, and we're going to look at a couple of his quotes, the cost of discipleship. This is what you need to know. Do you want to sign up for this or not? Because if you don't, then 
look for something else, I guess. We're not changing it. Jesus didn't change it. It is kind of silly sometimes how we think about, well, the gospel is so great, and it is. And if I tell it to somebody, how come they don't believe it? Because every time Jesus talked to people, everybody agreed with him, right? That's why they killed him, because everybody agreed with him, right? I mean, obviously, it's just silly. Jesus had the perfect words at the perfect time, and they killed him. Don't be surprised when people hear the gospel and don't respond at first. Um, so, verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. For we who, are, we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our mortal flesh so that death is at work at us, but life in you. So he's very poeti poetic here. We, we, we can go in other places and he get beat up a lot. Again, there's another example. Um, I haven't got beat up by telling the gospel yet. And that's good. So you can do it on a plane because that's, that's against federal regulations. They can't beat you up. So that's good. So there's a, you know, maybe the plane's the way to do it. Um, but his words are strong. They're, they're helpful here. Our mortal bodies waste away, but for followers of Jesus, transformed by the Spirit, our immortal soul is renewed by the Spirit day by day. So what is the cost of discipleship? Well, we're going to go to another gospel. We're going to go to Luke 14, and this is, you, you've probably heard some of this too, verse 25, um, kind of stands on its own. Um, and if you have a heading, it might just say the cost of discipleship. But Now, great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them. Now, think about this. Most of the time when we think about Jesus, we think he just told things that people really like to hear. Um, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Do you like hearing that? I don't really care for it much. <laughs> you know, at the base. Now, hate there is a comparison where you can tell a little bit more in the Greek. He's just saying, if you compare how you're supposed to look at God and how you're supposed to look at other people, it almost looks like hate because you're supposed to love God more. But you think these people receive this well? <laughs> I mean, he did not go through the Carnegie how, how to win friends and influence people course, did he? Uh, he was just telling the truth. Well, he goes on, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And this, this, we miss this next part, and that's why I wanted to hit it. When you talk about the gospel, we sometimes in evangelical circles think we have to get people today to make a decision right now because if they don't, they may never do it. And the motive's probably good there. But I want you to look at these two little parables and see maybe if that's not the way we're always supposed to do it. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin mock him and saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. And that may take some time. But you don't think about that, you know? Like today, you want to follow the gospel? Don't you follow the gospel? Maybe you need to figure out what you're following first before you make a decision. 
And sometimes we push people into the decision and they don't even understand what they're making a decision for. We have to be careful with that. This could take some time to figure out if you want to follow this. You know, sometimes we push the Holy Spirit maybe where the wind doesn't want to blow right now. Let people, he's the one that saves people anyway. Let people listen. Get the gospel out there. And he gives another example. Or what king going to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks the terms for peace. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So what's Jesus saying here? He's saying, if you're not willing to count the cost, don't follow him right now. Make sure you know what you're getting. Don't turn into one of those people that, oh, I believe, but then the cares of the world come, and you really haven't counted the cost, and you, don't, you really haven't given it up yet. That happens a lot. The Southern Baptists call that the backslider rate. You guys ever heard of that? Nice statistic. This is when you have a decision time. They come forward. They give their life to Christ. You know what the backslider rate now is in most Southern Baptist churches? It's over 90%. That those people you cannot find in worship acting like disciples, most of them it doesn't work. Why? Because they really haven't cost, counted the cost, I don't think. They haven't followed what's here. Now, if somebody comes to you and said, I've thought it through, I know I have to renounce my whole life, I've lucked at it, I want to follow Jesus, you don't say, oh, no, no, let's wait a while. No, go ahead, go for it, you know. <coughs> That's fine. Somebody probably has already been working on them. But this is the cost of discipleship. This is what we have to remember. And we have to remember that the cross is not the end to an otherwise happy life. But it means that it meets us at the beginning of our connection to Jesus and remains to give us true joy. The cross is at the center. It's not just the beginning. It's always at the center of who we are. And every day you wake up, hopefully you can say, no matter what happens today, no matter how bad it was yesterday, I still know that the cross is real. Then you've counted it. Then you get it. The change has fallen into the meeting. And as I said, from the book Cost of Discipleship, I think Bonhoeffer puts it very well. When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. That's kind of what Jesus is saying. I know we don't like to hear that, but he hits this even harder. What does he mean by that? A little bit later. Because only the person who is dead to their own will can follow Christ. That's the key. Are you going to follow him, or are you hoping to twist him into following you? That's not really true discipleship. If, he's in, if you're in, you think you're in charge and he is not. So hopefully this helps when you're talking to other people and when we get into the tactics course, that'll help you too. Are you giving the truth of the gospel and are you letting people understand it? Because if they don't understand it, they're going to fall away. We've got that from Jesus' parable. We get that from the statistics from different Baptist organizations. Let the Spirit change the heart. You just make sure you're ready to help them. And then after that's done, what do you do? Well, it's discipleship. It never stops. You keep following Jesus. You don't stop after you're in. That would be silly, right? You know, thank you, see you later. Nice relationship, right? It doesn't work well that way. So moving on, verse 13. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believed and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. 
For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So he's quoting Psalm 116. You can read that in your leisure time. The psalm is about the Lord reviving the soul of those who love and are obedient to him. And we had this last week. The old covenant's still about soul revival. It's not just, just happened in the new covenant. We, some people get this idea. All they did, they just killed a bunch of stuff. They ate a lot of goop. And they danced a lot back then, you know. Now, that's not the old covenant. was a covenant of grace through sacrifices that pointed to the cross eventually. Reviving the soul. You read that especially in the Psalms. So this fits Paul's train of thought here. His strong confidence in Yahweh does not waver even through affliction. And this helps us, right? You know, you think about the test of your faith. God tests our faith sometimes. So a lot of times we don't know that until it's already ended. But again, is your faith based on the life of Christ and the appropriating his grace into your life, or is it based on something else? You find out really quick when it gets tested. Um, for Paul, a lot of it was affliction. For us, it could be all kinds of things. I mean, can you think of anything in the last couple years that was annoying in our lives? I mean, it's been pretty good, right? We haven't any problems. We haven't any viruses. And then getting rid of viruses and viruses coming back and economic problems and all this kind of stuff. So I guess Jesus was pretty smart when he said, in this world we will have trouble, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Again, if you have the main thing, the rest of it ultimately doesn't matter, which is what he'll talk about toward the end here. So Paul kind of implies this, that if your faith is genuine, it will normally express itself in the words that show confidence in God's promises. And here explicitly for him, it's eternal life. It had to be hard. We read that a few weeks ago. It's like this guy was getting beat up all the time. You know, as a pastor and as Christians in America, people can really be annoying to Christians, right? You know, sometimes they say mean things. Um, sometimes they don't let us play and work well with others. Um, but it's not like some of the Christians around the world, is it? Um, they get afflicted. Paul got afflicted. Um, they always said, uh, you know, I, I think I think it'd be okay to die for my faith. I just don't want it to hurt. Uh, that would be the part I don't like. Let's get her done quick and <laughs> get it over with. But Paul, he says this in, in Romans. He's like, you know, I'm ready to go. <laughs> you know? but, but why would he want to stay? No, it's for these people. It's to help people who are already believers to become stronger in their faith and to help those who are not believers to maybe start looking at that one who can truly save them. And that's hopefully for you too, right? You know, tomorrow's not promised, but what can we do today? What can we do today that's going to have more eternal consequences than just temporal consequences? So again, you got it. What are the promises of God? You know, we always we kind of put it into three P's, you know, that he'll, he'll, he'll be with you. Power of the Spirit, being able to call him Father, all those kinds of stuff. When you go through bad times, he comes with you. The Comforter, all those kinds of stuff. Um, provision, he gives us what we need. You know, we have that in the middle of that disciples' prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. Um, which doesn't mean just sandwiches, right? Although that's nice. Um, it means provision for our lives, and I think that probably has more 
to do just than just with physical things, but our our spiritual health too, because Jesus did say that he was the bread of life, right? So there's probably more to it than just the physical. So presence, which you get if, and you get that anyway. I mean, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. And then protection. Well, protection from what? Evil. That's the end of the disciples' prayer. But deliver us from evil. Because as we've said, you can't fight evil on your own. You can try, but I think the devil's just going to laugh at you. Um, but with the Spirit, we can do that. So that's the promises which point to what? Eternal life. You start, starts now, and it ends. Well, when does eternal life end? Well, that's kind of a category error, isn't it? Um, uh, that's why it's called eternal. Uh, but that makes a difference. And, you know, if you go through tough times, does it make a difference that Christ died? Does it make a difference that you have eternal life? It should. And you know as well as I do, when you're having good times and things are going wonderful, you don't think about that as much as when you're having bad times. So Paul kind of puts that, and this is annoying to me. It's kind of a theology that's there. And you know that too. I mean, when you become a, a member of our church, we ask you about your faith story. And how many of you, I'm looking around, how many of you became believers because you were going through a tough time? That happens. Because when we're not going through tough times, we don't think we need Jesus. The cool part is if you can have fun with Jesus, too. I'd always want to go golfing with Jesus. Wouldn't that be fun? Go golfing with Jesus. Um, or play basketball with Jesus. Or go fishing with Jesus. That would really be fun because you're not catching anything. Say, hey, dude, <laughs> you know, do that, whatever it is you do. <laughs> you guys remember that? Anybody remember where that came from? Bewitched? Nobody else. Yeah, yeah, whatever. Look it up. Yeah. Hulu, that sucker, right? Um, but again, that's the promises, and that's just the way life is. But it's always there. It's always there for us. He's always there. He's always faithful. We fall short. I realize that. Um, and, and, and sometimes in our life, you know, we kind of just hang on with him. And other times it's like we can't do anything, and he grabs on really hard. And a lot of that's through each other, you know. We had that uh, in First in John. So let's finish up. With some, uh, this is real poetic. You've probably heard it. It's really cool. We're not going to spend too much time on it because it's kind of self-explanatory. But so we, he's probably talking about other apostles and their associates. We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all compassion, all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, temporary. But the things that are unseen are eternal. This is good stuff. This is really good Holy Spirit driven. It's the mortal body versus the immortal soul comparison. So our mortal bod bodies, you know, they'll get redeemed. But they, they, I don't know if you knew this, but as you get older, you deteriorate. Did you guys know that? You're probably thinking, you know, you know, I didn't think about that. I'm so glad I came today. Pastors tell me about my deterioration. When was that? A couple weeks ago, I got this wild hair that we should play some basketball. Yeah. Um, and we did. I didn't know my heart rate could get that high. <laughs> it was fun. Um, and we had fun, and we'll do it some more. Um, 
And we, you might get an email here in the near future that, you know, if you want to play some basketball, I've got a really nice place to do it. And just to have a little fun with it, I can pick anybody in here and beat any of you. Me. Challenge accepted. You should have a two-on-two tournament. But you do that, you, I mean, it's like, you know, 20 years ago when I was playing down the Y in, in Des Moines or 25 years ago, my heart rate didn't go up that high. What is going on? You know, it doesn't take long to realize that, but it doesn't mean we can't have fun with it, you know. And, um, but do you ever think that your soul maybe is young? How old is your soul? Well, I suppose my soul's around 57, because uh, I assume that's kind of, it got created the same time the body did. But it doesn't get any older. Isn't that kind of cool? So maybe we should have a soul basketball tournament. I don't know how that would work. Then I'd really rip you guys, wouldn't I? It would be really fun. I wouldn't even probably need another person. But, uh, but think about that. That's who you are. You are a body-soul combination. That's how it was meant to be. Adam and Eve in the garden, supposed to be there, and then they mess up. And th what do they say? They say that you will surely die. That's talking about the physical part. That when a soul is created, it never gets uncreated in the Bible, even at the great white throne judgment. This is kind of scientific, isn't it? You know, you got the... Relativity, the energy is never increased or decreased, but just changes form. It's just kind of the same thing here. So your soul, think about that. You know, your soul is never, it doesn't really age. Because if it's eternal, it's the same age now, mathematically, as it's going to be in 100 billion years from now. Isn't that cool? It's hard for us to get, and I know what you're thinking. It's like, the you know, it's hard. But this is cool stuff. He's asking us to maybe open our minds a little bit that this world is not the only world and it wasn't the one that was meant to be in the first place. This is the transient world. As C.S. Lewis said, if you feel like in your life that this world doesn't offer what you think you should have, it may be that you were made for another world. And that's kind of what he's saying here. So, you know, verse 17 is short. It's pithy. It's precise, but it's wonderful. Paul calls this life with all its trials and sufferings, and he had all kinds of those. A lot of persecution and spreading. He calls it light momentary affliction. Now, if I called it that, you'd say, well, he just doesn't understand. Because my, you know, people get annoyed at pastors, but that's just because we're sometimes annoying. But light moment, you know, he talks about getting beat up. He almost got killed. He had to go down to Damascus in a basket. He's just, you know, all the time. This guy gets killed by Nero in 67, 68, gets executed. Light momentary affliction. Why? He's looking at it in a different way. And notice what it does for him. It doesn't make him just sit there and say, ah, whatever, we'll just get this over with. Just kick the can down the road. No, he does what God has told him to do for his life. So if Paul can say it's light momentary affliction, then, any, then we should probably all look at that compared to eternity. Now, don't go to somebody who just lost a loved one and say, well, it's a light momentary affliction. That would be dull and not very pastoral because it doesn't feel light then. But he's just talking about life in general here. But this is a healthy worldview to have that all followers of Jesus should have. It brings to mind, again, the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
And I, I think it was Philip Yancey that put it this way. What are you going to do today? And I think you're already doing it. You're worshiping. What are you going to do today that's going to have eternal consequence? And I have thought about this a lot, and I'm pretty darn sure that football's included. There's just something, no, I'm just kind of kidding. I mean, that's why I wanted to put that out there because what do you enjoy to do? You know, you get kids that think, well, this is, you know, worship is boring. It's like, well, whose fault is that? Certainly not mine, (laughs) hopefully. Think about the things you like to do. Why can't God be involved in that in some way? We learned that in Fellowship of Christian Athletes, that, you know, you do things. I enjoyed playing football in college. It was stupid. I don't know what the heck I was thinking of. My jump shot's all screwed up because of my left knee. If I wouldn't have played football, I probably I could beat even more than y'all. But there was something about doing it with other people, getting to know those friends in the competition, and having Jesus at the center of it made it even that much more fun. If Jesus doesn't make your life more fun, you might not be doing the right things in your life. If you have to set him aside, he should boy it up not, oh, you go over here, because what I'm doing, you would not approve of. Yeah. We, you can have a lot of fun with him if you just let him in. But where's your, you know, if you go back and what does it mean, what is the treasure? We've talked about, this is not hard. Our treasure is our connection to God and our connection to each other. When you die, you're not going to look for that long lost brooch, that, that ant that died before you had when you get to heaven, are you? You're going to look for the ant. You're going to look for the one. You're going to look for the relationship. So why don't we try to work on those while we're here? So, in verse 17, the things that are seen are temporary. The things that are unseen, the most important things, are eternal. But you can't see them. Isn't that hard, you know? So how do we know they're true? We trust Jesus. He said they're true. In my Father's house are many rooms. I go to prepare a place for you. Well, trust him. That's what he says. You know, Paul says we walk by faith, not by sight. But it's not blind faith, is it? We got a lot, a lot. We've got the promises of God, the Holy Spirit in our heart, and each other to back us up that this is true. So in summary, Paul reminds us of many very quality things here. The gospel of Jesus is sufficient and perfect. You don't need to add to it. You don't need to twist it. You don't need to manipulate it. Proclaim it as it is given. The key is to help people understand it and to entice them to believe it that only the Spirit can do. And although the cost of discipleship is great, it's about dying to your own will and living for Christ, hoping to unify them. Wouldn't it be cool if what God wanted is what you wanted? That would be really neat. I mean, if God wants the Bears to win the Super Bowl and I want the, then, then it's wonderful, right, for all people, except for Packer fans, you know. I mean, again, the important stuff. If we want what God wants, it'll make life so much better. So God giving this the desires of our heart. And finally, although the things of this world are important, we should honor God with what we have and remember that the best treasures in life are the things that are unseen, the things that are not temporary, and the things that are eternal. Let us pray. Fathers, we look through this wonderful text. We know Paul, uh, obviously inspired by your spirit to give us these wonderful words about what it means uh, to tell people the true gospel, what it means to 
understand the promises that you've given us and what it means to focus on what's eternal and not temporary. For each person here, I hope they do something today in their lives that has eternal qualities by the power of your spirit. And maybe my prayer is that they have fun doing it.